This is the Geoversive Earth Intelligence Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to Geoversive Earth Intelligence. It's great to have you with us. If you want to know more about Geoversive, just go to geoversive.net. And if you have any comments about this podcast or any other, all you have to do is go to the comment page on earthintel.org, earthintel.org. This program is a window into the frontier work of imagining, designing, forging, and securing the future of sustainable health and resilience, and it's open to all. To quote Joe Robertson, Myra Jackson says this is, uh, and meaningfully, this is a start of a conversation, a start of a community. Formerly, Joseph Robertson is Global Strategy Director for Citizens Climate Education and founder of Geoversive. And uh, right now, currently, the Commission Director for the Food System Economics Commission. Myra Jackson helped develop the UN 17 Sustainable Development Goals. She's a diplomat of the biosphere and remains a UN representative and focal point on climate change. And she's an expert and how on harmony with nature. Speaking of nature, let's make this uh, podcast about our food systems and about agriculture. Joe, uh, because you're in the position uh, that you find yourself, uh, and because you hear all about this, I want to ask a stark question. Uh, is our food system going to the grocery store, having the food that we have been blessed with in jeopardy? Thank you, Don. Um Yes, it is. Um, Our food system is not only in jeopardy, uh, our food system is putting us in jeopardy. Uh, 11 million people around the world die prematurely every year due to some aspect of their diet not being what it should be, uh, whether that's from hunger or other kinds of malnutrition. Um, Our food system has caused us to transgress five out of nine identified planetary boundaries, according to the Atlantic Commission report. Uh, Our food system is driving the sixth mass extinction, unprecedented biodiversity collapse and habitat loss. It's the largest contributor to deforestation, which is a driver of climate disruption. Um, And according to the Food and Land Use Coalition report, Growing Better, uh, the total cost of the way that we produce, distribute, and consume food every year is $2 trillion more than the market value it creates. So it's giving us all of that danger and threat, and it's also costing us more than we can afford. Um, so all of those factors, the collapse in biodiversity, our, our excessive uh, exploitative use of land, uh, depletion of fresh water resources, climate disruption leading to uh, a worsening of those same things. All of that is putting stability of the food system itself at risk. Uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has identified the steadily escal- escalating risk, now almost certain to happen sometime before mid-century, if we don't take serious action on climate change, of the possible failure of multiple breadbasket regions at the same time. What that means is there wouldn't be enough food for everybody, even with the, f- the food we have stored up. Um, that would be an unprecedented shock 
to the world, to global peace and security, to our economic systems. So yes, our food system is at risk and it's putting us at risk. Let me be parochial for a minute, Joe, and ask you about what that might look like in the future in the United States where uh, there is uh, virtually a super grocery store on in every neighborhood. What might it look like 30 years down the road? What might a grocery store look like? Well, that's a great question. I, I think that the way that we get to a sustainable, healthy future is by envisioning it and then working backwards and taking all the right steps. So, uh, so let's go there for a minute. I think if we're going to have that kind of supermarket grocery store, uh, there will be some things that'll be different. I think organic food will be far more common. Um, I think locally produced food will be far more common. I think if we're living in a healthy, sustainable future, we will be more accustomed than we are now to seasonal foods uh, because that allows for the organic local production and distribution of food. I think that we should expect less plastic. We should expect uh, fewer preservatives, chemical preservatives. Um, but I think for the most part, if we can do all the right things, having the variety that we're used to, having the convenience that we're used to is entirely feasible. Having the economies of scale that we're used to is also feasible. But I think one of the most significant pieces of this puzzle that people are not aware of is what happens to farmers. Um, in the system we're in right now, the incentives all go to big institutions, big companies, regions, trading blocks. They don't go to the individual farmer. Uh, we need more benefits from our food system to go to producers, to go to the people who make the food and who ideally make it healthy for us. Um, Achieving that benefit to farmers is going to help us achieve this better future. Uh, and we should be thinking about that now if we want to have that, that sustainable future in 2050. Myra, it raises a question for me because I'm put in mind of an interview that I did with Ken Burns, the documentarian for PBS. And we talked about the Dust Bowl. And the Dust Bowl had hurt the Central Great Plains terribly over a long period of time, but it was only later after the people who had lived through it thought that God had done something to them or that uh, some great natural disaster had occurred. Agronomists found out, no, it was caused by human beings and the misuse of land, not following nature's rules, in other words. If we were better at following nature's rules, could we help heal the food system. You know, one of the, the the things that come to mind as you were laying out that interview with Ken Burns is that we still have people that live on the planet who feel themselves to be in relationship with the earth. And even in my own lineage, I remember there being this rule around what you do with the plant when you harvest it. You never take the whole plant in, in some of these plants. You you leave, you, you never take more than two-thirds because that would undermine the well-being of the plant. 
and the plants and the seeds and all these were considered to be relations. We were in relationship. They were part of, we had kinship with them. And so you're tracking their well-being. Now, you know, I used to think of this being far down, you know, way back in our history, but it's not. We're only a couple of generations outside of this simple sensitivity and awareness that there is such a thing as the health and well-being of nature. And if we were using that approach and we're in touch with that approach, it would guide us in how we would grow food and how we would care for cattle. You know, we just had this beautiful conversation with Joe. And he went into the future and he backcast from that future about what would we see in supermarkets. And, you know, supermarkets are a, a, a new thing. We were so much closer to not only nature, but also to our food systems and to water. And it seems as humans, we lose something when we lose connection. We lose the ability to trust. In fact, even in our oxytocin, and serotonin, when we hug someone, it's a different feeling hormonally when we trust that person. And that's the kind of connection. It's biochemical. It's, it's in us to have relationship with the living world. And to restore that, we change the sensitivity that we have on what we allow as real and true. So I'm looking forward to a time in which we're measuring the health of soil, the health of the rivers, the pristine nature of the river, not the health of it in terms of our recreation or in terms of our transportation down the river as an avenue of industry, but a real sense of, of whole health and that giving rise to our being able to really have health ourselves and to thrive. So if I were to go in the future I would go into a future where we're living in harmony with nature and that we're as attuned to the well-being of nature as still some in the Alps are. There are still communities in the Alps, indigenous uh, Swiss, who speak Ramanesh, who still today do not consider their well-being outside of the well-being of the river and the forest and the grasses and the animals and the trees. They literally, their language doesn't allow them to speak of wellness without consideration of the natural world. And that's something to me worth restoring. Joe, has industrial agriculture gotten so far down the road that some people would find it impossible, the farmers would find it impossible, the corporate farmers would find it impossible to go back and abide by the laws of nature, to use practices that are, to use the term of art that is used uh, so often in this, regenerative? I don't think so. I think there are parts of you know the industrialized farming landscape in places like Iowa where chemical industrial farming has done so much damage that life in the soil is almost completely depleted so that uh, the soil is fertile only when it's treated with chemicals. In places like that, if you set your focus on building ecology, building life in the soil, building soil biomass, 
that's carbon-based life forms in the soil. If you set about doing that, you can enrich the soil, enrich the carbon-based biomass a thousand-fold in some places because it is that depleted. Now, as you do that, each additional layer of complexity in that ecological system under the soil is giving you more resilience. It's giving you more adaptability. It's making it possible for you to shift gears if you have to plant something new because you don't have to buy all of these chemicals that are perfectly attuned to a specific seed that was designed to work with those chemicals. If you have a more complex natural system under the ground, adjusting that system to some new focus is easier. All these things give you resilience. That gives you adaptability. It gives you a cushion. And when you have that cushion, you are more investable. Financial institutions, government subsidies, insurance companies, they can do better dealing with you because you have that resilience, you have that protection. And that soil that's more resilient, that farm that works in that way that's regenerative, it's not just building soil carbon and capturing carbon and possibly helping to reduce overall carbon emissions. It's also allowing the soil itself to retain moisture better, to essentially be alive in the way it needs to be to do its job as soil, instead of being susceptible to erosion from wind and water, which is what dirt is when it's not alive. All these things give you a better way forward. In order for the farmer, the individual farmer, to be able to get there, there are places where they're going to need help. They're going to need to get over a hurdle or two, but you can change that dynamic and you can help them by realigning subsidies so that you value these, these practices. Myra was talking about, you know, farming in harmony with nature. If, if we value life in the soil and we value climate smart resilience building agriculture, we can start to diversify rural economies. We can bring in these small businesses that support that kind of farming. They're providing different services. Some of those might be data services. We can show that that way of doing business creates added value for everyone else across the economy. And by doing that, we can start to realign finance at all levels, locally, at the national level, in private institutions. We can get a higher return on investment for the people in the system and for the health of natural systems. The so-called losers in that game would be the big industrial companies that aren't attentive enough to make the adjustment. If they fight to try to keep a kind of market dominance that's unfair to everyone else, that's fundamentally degrading value for everyone else, then they will ultimately be losers. But they can make those adjustments and avoid that. Myra, in the documentary that is uh, currently available, I believe on Netflix, called Kiss the Ground, Ken Archuleta, who worked for the Soil and Conservation Service and now works for the NRCC, says that he travels around the country trying to explain to farmers the concept of soil horizons. Now, that's actually a very simple concept when it comes to topsoil and how plants grow and how we feed people. The question that occurs to me is that are, are farmers who do not follow regenerative practices, no-till farming, cover crops, are they writing their own epitaph? Financially, 
yes, and physically, yes, uh, they are. They truly are. If you talk to the farmers, and I'm not deciding that. I'm just going by the conversations that I've had around the table with farmers, where they their hands are tied when it comes to the financing instruments they depend upon to keep their farms running. And, you know, that big shift from uh, industrial farming, which many of them are involved in, uh, to other forms of farming is a lifestyle change that is, it's not only change, it's game changing. They get their lives back. They get some of the joy of farming back. You know, this just this points to um, to something else. Uh, most of the farming that we are seeing is not particularly in the heartland. Along the Mississippi, I can speak to, doesn't produce food for people. Is not used to feed people on this continent. Most of it is to feed animals. So. Uh, and I'm not not a bad thing to feed animals, but the proportion is out of sync with what nature would do. We've got to get the proportion right again. But again, this gets us back to conversations around the metrics and GDP. So for the farmer, their own epitaph, many of them are losing not only their land, but they feel the quality of their lives. Myra mentioned metrics, right? And we've had this conversation about GDP, gross domestic product, the overall size of the economy. When we measure things in that way, we're not measuring the quality of any particular spending choice or investment. And therefore, we're also not measuring the quality of what people are doing to generate that spending or investment. We talk about return on investment And in that context, we're only talking about if I put up a dollar, can I get a dollar and four cents back? That's a return on investment of 4%. What farmers who are engaging in regenerative farming are doing is they're building value for everybody else. They're helping to stabilize not just their own land and their own business model, but they're also helping to stabilize the climate system. They're helping to stabilize freshwater resources. They're helping to create sustainable value for entire civilizations. And at scale, if you have millions of people doing this kind of work and building that enhanced value, you can start to see an external return on investment. So you, you put a dollar into that particular practice and you might get four cents back, you might get three cents, you might get eight cents, but you would then also get these other co-benefits, these other measurable value building outcomes that have that, that can be measured in dollar terms as well. If you can avoid catastrophic drought, then you avoid all of the money wasted, all of the opportunity cost of that drought. If you can avoid catastrophic storm surges because you have lessened the degree to which glaciers are melting because you've reduced global heating because you've lowered overall carbon emissions or even begun to sink carbon so you have net negative carbon emissions if if you can do those things then you're avoiding all of this harm and we should be investing in the people who are doing that and we should be developing the metrics that allow us to say that external return on investment is x we can see it we know it we want to maximize it not only are we seeing the value in the rebuilding of the topsoil and the microorganisms 
that for every shovelful of soil, of good topsoil, there are more microorganisms within that shovelful than all the human beings that ever existed on the planet. That if we rebuild the topsoil by following these practices that are being recommended, then things begin to turn around and the drawdown of carbon dioxide is remarkable because then the the uptake of all of the carbon in the atmosphere, the additional carbon behind background noise, beyond background noise, uh, then is put back into the roots where they belong. Why isn't it being done? Don, we have a big fight going on. I have to say, this is especially strong for me today because there were meetings at you know at at those high levels that did not go well today. Uh, that there was almost a doubling down on agriculture, the current systems that are in play. And I thought our big fight was you know the fossil fuel economy, and that seems to be moving in a direction that we need it to go, but now it's brown and green. And I, uh, these forces are entrenched and strong. And so I, this is where turning people on to the present need is so critical. You know, you just mentioned how much uh, decarbonization is possible with the health of soils. The same thing is with all the waterways, you know, there's soil at the bottom of the beds of those rivers and oceans that provide us with the same kind of ability to draw down carbon. And we need all of those systems working. When they are in their pristine, healthy state, they naturally draw down those carbons. And there is a role that we can play in that. And it's significant. Drawdown has 20 ideas of the way we can draw down carbon, um, edited by Paul Hawken, its comprehensive plan. And what's featured in Drawdown is mostly around food systems. Of course, our way of agriculture shifting, but it also includes women and the decisions that women make every day in households that in, you know impact the buying decisions. And I feel that that's where the environment will shift and will change is when we insist on consuming differently. And that will put pressure on this system. Thank you very much, Joan Myra, for being with us on uh, this podcast today. A reminder to our audience that we're going to be having many guests as time goes by, people whose lives have been dedicated to try to struggle to find the answers that we are bringing up as questions today and topics of discussion. But this is, as Myra says, a conversation that will eventually build a community. If you have any questions for us at Geoversity of Earth Intelligence, you can go to earthintel.org and leave a comment. And if you want to know more about Geoversive, go to geoversive.net. Thank you very much, Joe and Myra, for being with us today. Thank you, Don. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all. Let's remember food can be our medicine. And thank you very much, all of you, for listening. And push this out on your social media if you want to. If you find these podcasts instructive or informational, please let other people know that they can find it at earthintel.org. 
I'm Don Shelby. Thank you very much for being with us today. 